You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. So for several years, um, people on this side of the world have been a little scared and nervous. uh, This little dot on the map around the globe called North Korea. They just make us nervous. And they make us nervous because for several years, they had this little dictator. He's about four foot nothing that wore some really, really weird clothes named Kim Jong-il. And, um, I mean, the bottom line is he's a ruthless communist dictator. And, uh, so you kind of had this thought of, if we could just get him out of power, things would be better. Well, not really because he died and then his son took over. His name is Kim Jong-un. He's worse because he's younger and even more arrogant and maybe even more crazy. I don't know. But what I did not know until very, very recently is that Kim Jong-un had a half-brother. His name is Kim Jong-nam. Um, now, I said the word had on purpose because on February the 13th, Kim Jong-nam was murdered. And when the story first came out, it sounded a, just a bit weird and random. These two women that he apparently had never seen before murdered him in the Kuala Lumpur airport. Now, they didn't come up and stab him with knives or shoot him with a gun. They had two ladies, mind you. They had in their possession VX toxin nerve agent that they rubbed in his face. It took about 20 to 25 minutes for him to die, and I have been assured it would have been a brutal, brutal death. Very, very painful. But so now what's come out is these two ladies have all these connections to North Korea. And so you begin to put all the pieces together and it doesn't take a Tom Clancy novel to figure out that Kim Jong-un ordered the execution of his half-brother. And I'm aware of the fact that you can look at someone's life like that and you can go, man, You want to talk about the level of depravity. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but I don't care. I mean, don't you have to have at least some morsel of humanity and decency that keeps you from murdering your own flesh and blood? What on earth brings somebody to this point? Well, that is the heart of the story of Cain and Abel. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And let me say before I go any further, I'm aware of the fact that like in my own family, and and I don't so much mean my family now, but my family earlier in life, like when growing up, I've told you the story before, you know, my brother and I, we used to go round and round about things. There's a few stories, like especially the one where my brother chased me through the house with a knife. Um, I'm usually quick to tell people it was a butter knife, not because I know it's a butter knife, but just because we all just feel better saying that, <laughs> right? But we panned, we, we ironed out our differences. We're like, you know, best friends now. And, and so I, I look at this and I go, what in the world brings somebody to that point? Well, look with me this morning in 1 John 
near the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. John says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. As you're going to see in a few minutes, Cain didn't just kill Abel. He didn't just order his execution. He's the one that carried it through. And what would cause somebody to do this? How does someone suddenly go from being their brother's keeper to being their brother's killer? Well, that leads us honestly to the bigger question that you and I need to answer this morning. Am I my brother's keeper? Are you your brother, your sister's keeper? Are you responsible for your brother, your sister? Well, the Lord's going to answer that question. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4. You will remember in Genesis chapter 3, God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he has said, I've given you everything that you ever will need. Um, Adam and Eve could have been singing what we just got through singing. Uh, you, you are the only one I need. You are the only one worthy of praise. Here's all that you need. But now there's this one thing over here. You're not to touch it. You're not to eat of it. Nothing. And the enemy comes along and deceives Eve. Eve brings Adam along with her. They fall into sin. God rebukes Satan, God rebukes Eve, God rebukes Adam, and then God removes them, kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. So what happens next? Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten, or I have created a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So Eve names her first son Cain, which means to possess, create, to, to get. And interestingly enough, when he is born, she says, I have gotten, I've possessed, I've created a man with the help of God. Well, then Abel comes along and Abel's name comes from a word that means vapor, like here and then gone. It's almost as if Eve knows what's going to happen with her son's life. It's going to be here. It's going to be gone. Let's keep going. Verse three. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Remember, Cain is a farmer. Abel is a shepherd. Okay. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. So what's happening here? Is God like really picky about what he does and doesn't want people to bring to him? Does God like sheep more than he likes strawberries and fruit? Does God like shepherds more than he likes farmers? Um, actually, I don't think this has much to do with God's preferences. It also doesn't have anything to do with Cain and Abel's professions. That said, it is not only about what was being brought, 
It's about how it was being brought. Okay? It's not only about the offerings that were brought, it's about how they were brought. The scripture tells us that Cain brought some fruit. Well, you can probably deduce they didn't have church like this um, out east of Eden when Adam and Eve and their family were hanging out. What they did was they would gather as a family to worship. And when they did, Cain, he gathered up some fruit and he brought it. He brought an offering. But the scripture says that Abel brought the first fruits. He brought the firstborn of his flock and more. Now, that being said, it still doesn't explain to us why did God have regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain and his offering? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 for a second. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel and his gift were accepted and regarded by God because of Abel's faith. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not that God did not care about the offering, but the reason that the offering was acceptable is because of the heart that brought the offering. Abel came with faith. Was Cain's offering itself? Again, understand, it's not that if... Cain brings strawberries, let's say, that God says, I don't do strawberries, man. I'm just into sheep. It's not so much about the offering itself. Is it more about Cain's attitude and motive in bringing it? Something to consider, all right? Proverbs 21, 27 says that God loathes the sacrifice of an evil person. What does that tell me? Well, if I bring an offering and and a person whose heart is set against God brings an offering and they're the same offering, God hates, he loathes the sacrifice of an evil person. Solomon is telling me something here. In Psalm 51, when David is in deep repentance and confession over his sin, he says in verses 16 and 17, he confesses to God and in doing so, he explains to us, that God desires obedience more than he desires sacrifice. And again, don't misunderstand. It's not that God doesn't desire sacrifice. But if I think I'm sacrificing while I'm not being obedient, God is saying, you are missing the point. So, There's an incorrect and a correct way to understand this. First, let's address the incorrect. The incorrect perception is God doesn't care about what we give. He just cares about how. God's not really concerned with what our offering is. He's just concerned with how we give it. That's not really right thinking. Here's the right way to understand it. God does care about what we give because what we give always reflects how we give it. 
See, God looks at what we bring and what we bring is one of the revelations. It's one of the revealers of the heart with which I'm bringing it. The sacrifice that I bring is going to reveal whether or not I'm being obedient to God or I'm just trying to trying to appease him. One way or another, Cain's heart winds up being revealed in all of this, right? Because it says Cain was very angry and his face fell. This made Cain angry and dejected. Look at verse six. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Why are you so angry, Cain? Why do you look so dejected? If you respond in the right way from right here, will you not be accepted? So what is Cain angry about? Why is he dejected? What's causing all of this? Matthew Henry in his commentary on Genesis speaks into this. And I'd like you to read it with me. I think it's in your sermon notes, be on the screen. Uh, And I do want to to say before we start reading this, that the italics that you read, those are mine. They're not Matthew Henry's, okay? The offerings of Cain and Abel were different. Cain showed a proud, unbelieving heart. Therefore, he and his offering were rejected. Abel came as a sinner, so he came humbly and according to God's appointment. Cain came, excuse me, Abel came the way that God had directed he was to come. By, by his sacrifice, expressing humility, sincerity, and believing obedience. In all ages, there have been two sorts of worshipers, such as Cain and Abel. Namely, proud, hardened despisers of the gospel method of salvation who attempt to please God in ways of their own devising. And humble believers who draw near to God in the way that he has revealed. Cain indulged malignant anger against Abel. Cain harbored an evil spirit of discontent and rebellion against God. God notices all our sinful passions and discontent. And I feel like I need to underline, circle, and highlight these next words for myself. There is not an angry, envious, or fretful look that escapes his observing eye. The Lord reasoned with this rebellious man, if he came in the right way, he should be accepted. God is offering Cain an opportunity to retrace his steps, to rethink his position in all of this. Essentially what God is offering to Cain is an opportunity to repent. And the Lord tells Cain, if you rethink this, if you retrace all of this and you repent of bitterness, anger, of unbelief, you will be forgiven. If not... Look at verse seven again. If you do well, if you respond correctly, will you not be accepted? But if you do not, if you do not do well, if you do not rethink this, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God says, if you refuse to respond correctly, watch 
out. Sin is lurking. It is hiding at your door and it is luring you in. Its desire is to attack you, consume you and destroy you. Its desire you see here says is for you. That's a little bit, um, miss, I I guess we can misunderstand that pretty easy. Because what it sounds like in its desire is for you is like, hey, it's behind you. It's rooting for you. Sin, it likes you. No, no. When this says that it's for you, what that means is that it desires to possess you and consume you. So if you want a better translation, what you can say here is that sin's desire is against you. You must rule over it. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 that our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. Peter didn't mean to mislead us, but that scripture can be misleading because I know good and well, some of you in here, you watch the National Geographic channel and you know that when a lion is prowling around and stalking that gazelle, it doesn't roar. Because, you know, the gazelle sitting there on your TV just, duh, Sounds like maybe somebody's around. I don't know. I'll just stay at this water hole. And then here he comes. When does the lion roar? Right when it's about to attack. Is it because of the lion's pride? Is it like, hey, I'll give this uh, gazelle a nanosecond to get away. (laughs) It's pointless. I, I don't know why the lion does it, but the lion in that fashion operates like Satan operates like sin. It's not going to warn you like miles and miles down the road. I'm coming to get you. It's just going to bam attack. And the next thing you know it, you and I, we're subdued. We're consumed. We're destroyed. When Satan is crouching at our door, what begins to happen, if we don't respond correctly, it begins blinding us to his presence and his threat. And so understand, when we refuse to respond correctly, as God says here to Cain, what happens is we disguise our sin and we dismiss the enemy. I want you to think through that for a moment. We begin to disguise our sin, dress it up like it's something else, and we begin to dismiss the enemy. And it doesn't necessarily happen in that order. Maybe it happens in reverse order. But I hope that it sounds a little bit familiar to you. We disguise our sin. We dismiss the enemy. All you have to do to read what I just said is go back one chapter into Genesis chapter 3, right? Because Eve's first mistake was she dismissed the enemy. Hey, Eve, I heard what God said to you. He didn't really mean that, did he? Like, you won't die. It won't kill you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. You should eat. And they do. And what's the next thing that you find Adam and Eve doing? After covering their nakedness, disguising their sin, hiding from God, trying to make it out to be something else that it wasn't. And just so that we we don't get the wrong idea, I think a lot of times we think 
Man, things are just going to hell in a handbasket. The sin in this world is just much greater than it used to be. Blah, blah, blah. Folks, the first two humans on the earth sinned. Bam. You know how many generations it took murder to get here? One. It's just a different shroud. Let me explain what I mean. Like when I was growing up, I had this idea of what the 50s and 60s looked like. And you know where I got my idea of the 50s and 60s? Happy days. <laughs> I really thought, you know what? I would have been a better Richie Cunningham than Richie Cunningham. I, I could do that. Whole white t-shirt and my, everybody's just bebopping and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and everything's pure and white and innocent like my white t-shirt. You know, that's a load. Now I can watch Mad Men and go, Oh, so that's what it was really like. Which pretty much looked like now. I, I say that to you so that you and I are not overwhelmed with this idea that the level of depravity now, it's just so much more to, to bear. No, it started here. It's sin. It's just still infecting and destroying I want to ask you just to stop and think for a moment. How many instances and circumstances in your life, if you just stopped and, and you just listened to and yielded to the spirit of God, if you just obeyed the father, how many instances, how many circumstances, how many things would be different? How many things do we not listen to him? Because quite frankly, we know what he's going to say. And I don't want him to tell me not to do this. And then we wind up covering our nakedness. Cain did not listen to the Lord. Look at verse eight. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when you read the, the Hebrew, what it actually says is that Cain spoke to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Hey, Abel, let's, let's go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Hey, does that sound familiar? Adam, Adam, where are you? Hey, Abel, where's your brother? And now listen to the height of arrogance. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? A am I responsible for my brother? And the Lord said, what have you done? Again, sound familiar? God says to Eve, what is this you've done? God says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you read Genesis 3:17, you'll notice that God says to Adam, the ground is now cursed because of you, Adam. But he says to Cain, you are cursed from the ground. Now the ground is going to be doubly in rebellion against you. 
how on earth do you suddenly reach the point where you take your brother's life? What could bring a person to the place of considering premeditated murder against their own flesh and blood, then thinking over it a while and determining, yep, that's what we're going to do. Go back with me to 1 John chapter 3, where we began. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, John says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. But we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John is explaining to us that evil hates righteousness, hates it. That the darkness hates the light, wants nothing to do with it. John is repeating what he has heard Jesus say. If you turn to John chapter 3, um, I would dare say that almost all of us in here, we know John 3.16, but let's look at John 3.19. Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light because if he does, he knows my works will be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So back to that question, how on earth do you suddenly reach the point where you take your brother's life? Here's the answer. You don't. You don't. It doesn't suddenly happen. If you go back and you read in Genesis chapter 4, it did not suddenly occur that Cain determined just to kill his brother. It all began with a seed. It begins with anger. And it hides at your door. And the Lord warns you, he warns me, hey, it's waiting it's waiting, it's there, it's waiting to attack you, it's waiting to consume you and destroy you. You better master it and subdue it or it will master you. It begins with a seed of sin. It begins with a seed of jealousy. It begins with a seed of bitterness. It begins with a seed of anger. And what Jesus tells us here in John chapter three when he's speaking to Nicodemus is that it is always birthed from loving the darkness instead of the light. So understanding this, when we choose to walk in rebellion, any of us, when we choose to live in sin, we will at some point begin to hate righteousness and anyone walking in it. When we choose to live in sin, we will begin to hate righteousness and anyone walking in it. 
Let me see if I can better explain this. Maybe we can better understand this. I attempt to be throughout the week, and when I use the word week, I mean Monday through Friday, I try to be fairly disciplined in what I eat. I also try to exercise and stay fit. But here's the deal. A lot of times when the weekend comes, at least in my opinion, it's now time to party with my mouth. I'm going to eat some stuff, right? Especially like during football season. If I've gone all week and I've been really disciplined and everything, and like Saturday afternoon, evening comes, it's time for some pizza, some wings, maybe both. I'm having some ice cream. Let's go to the sports bar. Let's order all the appetizers. Let's eat, man. You know who the last guy you want coming with you when you choose to do that? The salad guy. I mean, for real, you're ordering wings and pizza and burgers and he's down there with his Cobb salad and you're going, who are you? Yesterday, still trying to, I was at the ball field yesterday and where do the boys want to go between games? Zaxby's. I hate Zaxby's. You know, you know what they do? They like put on the board, you are about to eat all your day's calories with these three chicken tenders. I don't know how you can actually see that and then eat it. So I ordered a salad and I knew there were people probably sitting at the table going, idiot salad guy. That's the last person you want to be around. Let's say that you've saved up for a new car and oh, you've been driving by just looking at it for two years. It's like a V8. It like moves. I've got to have this. Your wife has finally like caved in. Okay, for crying out loud, you saved and saved and saved and you're still gonna have to take out like a five-year loan, but I'm getting it. I mean, there's room in the back seat for at least my cat. There's no way that the three car seats for my little kids will ever fit there, but I'm supposed to have this car. And so you buy it and you're driving it home with the window down, you know, and you roll up in your driveway. Who's the last guy you want to see? Your moron neighbor that just paid off his minivan and he's waving at you. Hey, responsible neighbor. You don't want to see that. If I'm at home on Friday night, eating Twinkies, drinking Dr. Pepper, watching Netflix, I don't want to get on Facebook and see my buddy at the gym for the second time today. It's like, calm down, dude. Why? Why is this the truth in all of these circumstances? Here it is, plain and simple. When I am choosing to be bad, the last person I want to be around is the person that's choosing to be good. That's it in plain English. If I'm choosing to be an apathetic sloth, I don't want to be around my disciplined go-getter friend. I don't want to look at him and go, way to go, man, keep it up. I want to say, you need to sit down, shut up, and eat a Twinkie with me. Some of it goes back to that whole misery loves company thing. But here's the bigger picture, friends. When we choose to walk in sin, we will begin to hate and loathe righteousness. We don't want anything to do with it. And that's why the person who begins walking in sin, 
wakes up on a Sunday and says, you know, I don't so much think I need to go to church this morning. And maybe you don't voice this, but you think to yourself, I don't want to be around all those righteous people, which is the complete opposite of what we should think. Because if I've been walking in sin and I know I have got to repent, I have got to begin walking with the Lord. The first place maybe I ought to be is with the people of God who would say to me, hey, brother, I will pick you up and I will walk with you. But that's not what my flesh thinks. When this happens, it's because we've chosen, even if it's just for a moment, and these are John's words, not mine, we have chosen to abide in death. We're choosing to abide in death. And when we choose to abide in death, it tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that it will begin to eat us from the inside out. It will begin to destroy us. So let's go back to Cain's rebellious, arrogant, self-centered question. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know if you noticed this, God doesn't even answer Cain's question. It's almost as if God says, yeah, that's not even worth my breath. Because when we read the whole of the scriptures, God is sounding this overwhelming, resounding, emphatic, yes, 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 absolutely, you are your brother's keeper. And when I read Jesus and when I read what John says, what I begin to understand is that in my mind and in my heart and that within the depth of me, I am either my brother's keeper or I am my brother's killer. And now everybody's ready to tap out. Wait a minute. You know, people may chase others around the house with knives at your house, but come on, Brian. I'm no killer. Well, I don't know if you read what John said here in 1 John 3, 15, but he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know what's infected John's brain? Jesus. Because John remembers Jesus standing on the side of the hill that day. And we read it in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. And he says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. Well, I tell you, don't even harbor anger in your heart against your brother or your sister. Is John suggesting that when we begin to hate our brother, that we're physically going to wind up murdering them? No, but what he's saying is, is that in my heart, toward my brother or my sister, I am abiding in death. And if you read the whole of 1 John chapter 3, John is really, really serious about where we ought to be abiding. And it's in Jesus. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might bring that to your brother as well. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, absolutely. John says, hey, look, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It's going to happen. But now understand, if the world hates you, 
because they're choosing to abide in darkness and they hate you because the, the righteousness of Christ is what's causing them to loathe you. That's completely understandable. Now, should they hate you because you're a jerk? No. Should they hate you because you yell and scream about everything they do wrong? No. They should hate you because they look at you and they say, no matter how hard I come against you, yet somehow you love me. Who does that? You stand with and for people that maybe you don't agree with. How, does, how, do, how do you do that? The darkness says, I don't want anything to do with the light. The world is going to hate you, brothers and sisters. Jesus said the darkness would run from the light. The apostle Paul said that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But your brother and sister in Christ... For them to hate you, for you to hate them. Look at 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And again, you have to almost hear Jesus resonating through John and Jesus saying in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment that I give to you to love one another. In fact, by this, all people will know that you belong to me, that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Friends, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And God knew from the very, very beginning that Cain's heart was evil. He knew this not only because there was jealousy toward his brother, but because Cain kept watering the seed of jealousy and hate toward his brother. He knew this because of Cain's unbelief. Cain was more concerned with the outward appearance of his offering than the purity and the holiness and the obedience of coming the way that God said to come. I don't want to be like Cain. So let's turn the question into the answer. I am my brother's keeper. You are your brother, your sister's keeper. We are responsible for, for one another. If I'm being very honest with you, there are some days I don't want to be. I, I don't. And the reason there are some days that I don't want to be is because every single day of my life, I can't do it on my own. You see, that's where the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in once again and says to me, Brian, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. There is nothing that you will ever do or have ever done that will cause God to love you less. All that you need for everlasting joy, Brian, is my approval and you have it through Jesus. But see now that same gospel, that same gospel says, hey, Brian, now regardless of how you feel today, know something, my spirit is alive within you. 
And it's alive within you so that I can fill you with all of my love, with all of my grace, with all of my mercy, and that I might pour it out of you on the ones that I love. Not just the ones that you feel warm and fuzzy about, the ones that I love. This is the message that we have heard from the beginning, John says. We should love one another. I am my brother's keeper, John says, when I love, not simply in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. I, I am my brother's keeper when my brother begins to know that he will never bear a burden alone. When we know that there is no way I will walk through anything alone because my brothers and my sisters will always be there. I am my brother's keeper when God's love begins to compel me beyond my own comfort. I'm my brother's keeper when his holiness becomes more important to me than my happiness. But you know, more important than any of that, I am my brother's keeper because Jesus Christ is my redeemer. And he has said it will be so. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we ask you to give us hearts of humility. We ask that you search us, Lord, in anywhere in our life where there is a wall of pride built up. Lord, we pray that you would knock it down, level it, uproot it. Lord, we we pray that you would give us hearts of sincere love and compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, that you would give us brokenness for those who don't know you. And Lord, we, um, we just acknowledge that any of these areas in our life, Lord, where We need repentance where we have harbored anger, bitterness, hate. Lord, we're there because of our unbelief. Lord, there's some part of what you have said. There's something that you have promised. There's something about you that maybe even for just a second, we've stopped believing And we've decided that we need to be the judge. We need to be the jury. Lord, we need to be the executioner. Lord, we we pray that this morning that you would lift from us any burden that we have placed on ourselves. Lord, if you've put it there, Leave it and keep pressing. 
Lord, we ask this morning that you would empty us. I mean, literally drain us dry of jealousy, of bitterness, of resentment, God of apathy, of hate. And Father, we pray that in any corner, any dark corner of our life where we're just choosing to hang on to that, that you would literally make us miserable, that you would knock down the shroud that we've put up, the facade. God, that you would bring us to that place of obedience and repentance that we might again have the joy of walking in fellowship with you. Lord, move us to love, as John said, in deed and in truth. Protect us from closing our hearts against one another. Lord, we pray you would fill us with your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, that you would purify our hearts. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response to the Lord. But maybe you just need to come to the foot of the cross or to the steps and just spend a few moments praying, confessing, repenting. Earlier in his letter, John said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Maybe your day needs to be inconvenienced because you need to reach out to someone and you just need to say, I need you to forgive me because I've wronged you in my heart. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, some of our pastors, elders, and leaders are going to be in the back in a few minutes. They would love to talk with you, pray with you. Holy Spirit, have your way in these moments. Lord Jesus, we exalt you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.